this is tricky. This is a dangerous area uh, that we are in, and we don't want to overdo it and quash free speech and quash alternative viewpoints. We don't, uh, but we can't keep doing what we're doing now. Hi, I'm Gina Cerrito, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Lynn White and Judy Licht. We're the News Broads, broads casting about the news and all things media. We're here to give you insights on how it all works. A look at the news you won't find anywhere else. To protect the Constitution of the United States against enemies foreign and domestic. We are at war. And no matter what, even if it kills you, remain a free man. I am still baffled and saddened by the sights and sounds of those domestic terrorists. We all know that there is hate all over the internet. There's hate on social media all the time. But what are president who fans these conspiracy theories and these white supremacists? I still can't believe what happened on January 6th inside our nation's capital in 2021. Yeah, you know, Gina, uh, ironically, this is coming at a time when Congress has just been deliberating how and if we should control um, social media, how we should censor it or how we should regulate it. Uh, and it's hotly debated subject. It's the subject really of our time, I think. You know what, guys? I have a great guest. His name is David Bowles. He's a civil litigator. He's working in New York and California at the moment. He's currently suing the Trump campaign on First Amendment and free speech issues. He and his firm actually brought a class action suit to strike down the campaign's non-disclosure agreements, all on behalf of its campaign workers. Lots to talk about and unpack there. And uh, a lot of questions for you. Welcome, David. Thank you very much. I'm proud Welcome to, be to here. the news broads. <laughs> Thank you, ladies. Uh, David, you know, I guess the best way, since this is a really complicated issue, the best way to start is to figure out how actually internet um, and social platforms specifically um, has been regulated, you know, uh, back with the Decency and Communications Act. Maybe you could walk us through that. Absolutely, I'd be proud to. Okay, so I wanna take you back to the ancient history of 1990 and several hundred years before that and the common law of defamation. We'll just start with defamation. Um, defamation, uh, technically speaking, has four elements. You've got to have a false statement that is published, and that just means told to somebody else. Uh, it's got to be non-privileged, and it's got to uh, cause injury. And I'm going to simplify that. Defamation for layman is lying about somebody and hurting them. Now, for example, if Lynn tells somebody that David Bowles kicks puppies, that Bowles is a puppy kicker, that is a bad thing. People don't like puppy kickers. And it's also not true. I do not kick puppies. Um, and that hurts me because my, I lose some clients. Maybe I don't get a job. There's your classic defamation case. For hundreds of years, I, in that situation, would have been able to sue Lynn for defamation and recover money, right? So let's take it up a notch. Let's say Lynn does exactly that, but she does it uh, in a letter at the New York Times or an article in the New York Times. Uh, she tells the New York Times, I'm a puppy kicker, and the New York Times uh, publishes that. Can I sue the New York Times for exactly the same thing, for publishing that? And the answer for a long, long time has been yes. Under New York law, and I think the law in most state jurisdictions, uh, the publisher, in this case, the New York Times, is just as liable as Lynn is for publishing that information. Even One if it's more, under opinion? 
even if it's under opinion, sure. I mean, look, okay, there's a distinction between opinion. If Lynn says David Bowles is an asshole, that's an opinion, okay? There's no real factually challenging that. Maybe I am, maybe I'm not. But puppy kicking is a factual thing that you can prove or disprove, right? So uh, opinion writers talk about facts all the time. And if they say something factual that can be disproven, then yeah, then you're into defamation, okay? So one more step, and then we'll be ready to deal with the internet. What about the guy on the corner that sells the newspapers? What about the newsstand? What about Hudson News, right? They distribute that copy of the New York Times that says I'm a puppy kicker. Can they be liable? And the answer is no, they're a distributor. The theory is that courts figure that the New York Times has resources and ability to go back and vet everything and say, you know, figure out on their own whether I kick puppies or not. But the guy in the newsstand doesn't. So there's a distinction between a distributor and a publisher. The distributor's the guy on the corner. The New York Times is a publisher. Publisher is liable. Distributors are not. So think for one second when we're talking about the internet, think when we're talking about Twitter. Is Twitter a publisher or a distributor in this situation? I would guess it's a distributor, no? Two cases in the early 90s, both of them in New York because that's where everything important happens. Um, <laughs> two cases, one in 1991. Remember CompuServe? I used to use CompuServe when I was in law school. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was great, right? You dial yeah. in and you get into these games and you get bulletin boards and people talk on the bulletin boards. Well, there was a bulletin board called Rumorville that was actually rumors about journalists and things like that. And somebody uh, posted something defamatory or allegedly defamatory in Rumorville and they sued. It was a case called Cubby versus CompuServe and it was decided in 1991. Now CompuServe said, I'm the guy at the newsstand. I'm the guy on the corner selling this stuff. I don't edit this stuff. I just pass it right through just like a newsstand. I'm a distributor, I'm not a publisher. And the court, this is Southern District of New York, federal court said, yep, you're right. You're a distributor and you are not liable. It was dismissed on summary judgment. So Judy, you were right on that one. But four years later, there was another case. Remember Prodigy? Yeah. Yes. Right? Yes. Similar sort of thing. Prodigy had bulletin boards too, right? And in uh, 1995, there was another case. It was called Stratton Oakmont versus Prodigy. Again, there was a bulletin board. Again, something was posted. Somebody thought it was defamatory. They sued and Prodigy said, hey, I'm a distributor too. But the court said, no, you edit your stuff. Right. You examine your post, you curate them, you moderate them, and you take down the bad stuff. And therefore you are a publisher like the New York Times. You're no longer the guy on the corner. So you lose in that case. They were held liable. Wait, is this why Twitter and them don't want to edit? Because then they would be considered liable? We're not there yet. Publishers. I don't think we're there yet. I know, but I'm just, just we're almost that there. But see, that's so it's exactly right. And it's it's fascinating, right? And that is yes. what led us to section 230. Because now you've got this terrible, terrible perverse incentive here, right? You got an incentive to not do the right thing. Prodigy did the right thing because they took down the shit posts. They right. took down the crap, the worst of the garbage, the worst of the defamation, and they got zinged for it. They were held liable for taking it down. Whereas right. CompuServe just let the ship pass right through <laughs> and the court said, that is fine. It is a terrible, terrible incentive. And even Congress is smart enough to know that. So in 1996, we got uh, section 230 of the Communications Decency Act. So the CDA was coming through Congress. Uh, the Senate version didn't have it. But then in the House, they stuck this thing in there, I think exactly because of these two cases, because of Stratton Oakmont in particular, they threw in section 230. So in 1996, it passes, and that brings us around to understanding what section 230 actually does. 
Section 230 has been called the 26 words that created the internet, right? It was expressly designed to allow tech companies to grow and boy, did it. I mean, Twitter wouldn't be what it is now. It wouldn't be possible uh, to be what it is now. Neither would Facebook without this section. It's in two parts. Section C1 is a, the 26 words that everybody talks about. And that essentially says that internet companies aren't liable for the stuff that's posted. Doesn't matter if it's defamatory, doesn't matter if they knew about it, they get better protection, even than the distributors, even than the guy on the newsstand. They're completely immune from stuff that people post with certain limited exceptions like child porn and stuff like that. But for general defamatory stuff, uh, they can just post, let it pass through as much as they want, okay? But then there's another section, which happens to be 86 words that people don't talk about as much. That's section C2. And section C2 gives a different immunity. Section C2 says that um, if you take stuff down like Prodigy did, if you curate your post, if you moderate, then you're not liable for that either, okay? So it removes the Stratton Oakmont problem. It removes the problem of being liable for doing the right thing. Um, so it gives double immunity. Now, my impression is that liberals are pissed off about C1. They want more moderations. Uh, they want more curation of these things. But conservatives are pissed off about C2. They want less. They want everything to pass through. And then the question now that we've done the history is, what the heck do we do about it? Well, and also why? And why? Why, do we do why something? would, yeah. Uh, well, we had an insurrection a couple of weeks ago. Um, and uh, I think that at the root of that insurrection was the crap that goes out on Twitter and Facebook and, you know, Craigslist and Parler when Parler existed. And I don't know, maybe Instagram. I mean, I know they deplatform Trump from all of those places. Um, and um, uh, I think that's why everybody recognizes now that something needs to be done to control this, this fake news, this constant fire hose of misinformation that's out there. But with Section 230 in the way, it's hard to force that. It's not got to be amended legislatively. And why would it be political? Why would one side want it one way and one side would want other? Why wouldn't they all want to be on the same page as they were in 96? I would argue that it has to do with, again, the insurrection. I mean, even before that, that we were leading up to it with problems. A lot of the misinformation, I would argue most of the mis misinformation is on the right. That is what led to Trump to rise to power. That is what led to the misinformation that fed uh, the insurrection. And it's a right-wing thing. It's well known that uh, talk radio is primarily right-wing and they just spew all sorts of nonsense out there. Rush Limbaugh's been doing it forever. Um, uh, you know, um, I believe there is an edge in, um, in broadcast media um, for conservatives as well. Fox News, at least until recently, was you know, the biggest um, uh, news network, I believe, and mm -hmm. so on. The liberal position is that there's too much misinformation out there and there ought to be some way to hold people liable when they pass through that misinformation. The conservatives though, I think they like the misinformation. You know, that's what uh, kept them in power. They want more of it out there. And there is this strong, strong argument on their side that they are being unfairly censored and uh, they think it's a violation of the first amendment. They think when Trump is deplatformed by Twitter that that's a first amendment violation. At least they think it's wrong. Well, I, I, but I'd like to raise something here. One of the arguments that could be made on the conservative side, although that's not where I'm coming from necessarily, is that any kind of censorship 
is a slippery slope. And every authoritative, authoritarian regime, every dictator has essentially used this to to control. And so you can say, well, yes, we have to control certain horrific uh, misinformation. On the other hand, let's say we say, okay, let's have some censorship. Who are the censors? Who do they answer to? Where did they come from? How is that going to be controlled? And it's an, there, are, there are libertarians who aren't crazy right-wingers who would say, this is, I mean, even Jack Dorsey, who is the head of Twitter, as we all know, uh, and took Trump off his platform, argued with his own people, his, his workers. And he even said, you know, while actions may be justified in the current moment over the long term, it'll be um, you know, destructive to the noble purpose and ideals of the open internet. So there's a guy who's probably liberal himself, I'm guessing, but understands the slippery slope and is terrified of it. So you may have the, the evildoers who want more, you know, hate, hate you know, uh, militias and conspiracy theory people on, but then there are people who are, I think, more serious intellects, if you will, who say, wait a minute, I hate these people, I don't agree with them, but I don't know who's gonna say they can't be on or somebody else can't. It's there, there and I think lies the crux of the issue. Yeah, and I agree with you completely. And look, the idea that you raised is exactly the right one. In authoritarian, author, authoritarian governments, I had the same. Uh, typically, you've got, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, authoritarian governments. Typically, you've got the um, the authoritarian deciding what can go out and what can't. Right. Um, you've got a government who says effectively what is true and what's not. Who controls the tap of the press. Um, and we just can't have that here. We ha can't have the government saying this is true and this is not true and that is a problem. Um, uh, Potter Stewart, uh, one of the Supreme Court justices, right after Nixon, he gave a great speech to, I think, Yale Law School. It was called, uh, or of the press. And it was about the importance of you guys. It was about the importance of the fourth estate. And he pointed out something I never thought of before, which is that the fourth estate, the press, is the only uh, constitutionally sanctioned private uh, organization um, in the Constitution. Um, it's your guy's job, not the government's job, to hold the, uh, the government's feet to the fire to uh, say what is true. But all of that said, we've got a real problem here. And I think that is why Jack Dorsey um, uh, folded on this. He didn't want to take Trump down. He thinks, I think, on principle that that is a bad precedent to set. Uh, and I can't say he's wrong about that. But on the other hand, Look what it got us a couple of weeks ago. Something's got to be done. Well, and it's also where people are getting their news these days. They're getting their news from social media sites. And I don't think the framers of the Constitution ever foresaw that. And I, that's, why, that's why it's so scary. Well, it I, is know, I, so read, scary. I read that Potter Stewart thing. It's so funny. Last night at about mm -hmm. 11 o'clock yeah. at night, I was reading that Potter Stewart thing. And, you know, he made an interesting point to your point, Dave. He, he said that the, the, the reason he, in, in that speech, he talks about the reason that the press um, was really um, given free speech, you know, the only private institution um, that is constitutionally protected was because the framers of the constitution saw them as literally the fourth estate, which is how that mm -hmm. 
were it came about as as a check and balance against the the other three. Um, um, and the problem is, as you've just pointed out, is this is not the press. It is become the press for reasons we'll go on to you know discuss but because the press has sort of died since 1996 when they framed this um section 230 ironically killed by the internet and the fact that they took away all the money the internet took away all the advertising dollars uh from the free press it's it's become a free press in a way that nobody ever had anticipated and also in the past, we had regulations of a sort. We had the fairness doctrine that went by the wayside, yep. right? But we need that. We need a check and balance on the media and the parameters of the media and what media actually is. That's all shifted. Yeah, what media actually is, is I think an interesting. I would, I would ask you, David, when it comes to this fourth estate, how do we educate the country in explaining the differences between media, the fourth estate and some guy in his basement. I don't know. And I don't know that that ship hasn't sailed. I really don't. I mean, I think we need structural reforms on this. Uh, it is unfortunate and I agree, but people silo themselves into these little informational bubbles and they get a lot of their news and maybe most of their news off of Facebook. You know, not just off of Facebook, but off of links from Facebook to uh, sometimes terrible websites. It reinforces our prejudices. It, um, you know, allows us to only soak up news that we already agree with. There's a broader conversation to be had about that. I think Fox News um, and Rush Limbaugh and all that have created a silo, but the internet and Facebook and Twitter has certainly expanded or accelerated um, uh, the bubbling of society into their different informational bubbles. And we've gotten to a point where people don't have a common basis of fact on which to decide anything. You know, it's hard to decide something as simple as whether the wall has been built along the southern border or not. If you ask a lot of Trump supporters, it has been. If you ask liberals, it hasn't been. And that is a factual thing we ought to be able to determine uh, without you guys being, you know, curating, if you will, curating the information that's getting to us the way it was when we had the big three networks and a few radio stations. Without that, uh, we're kind of lost as to what reality is anymore. It is a real problem. Yeah, it's become a big business. And, and you know, bottom line is it's profitable to sell some of this garbage because people tune in. And that's how the networks, that's how these social uh, networks, I'm going to call them Twitter, Facebook, et cetera. That's how they make their money, by clicks. Sure. Sure, absolutely. And what was it? Wasn't it a kid in Eastern Europe that uh, found out that he could make so much more money than his parents by uh, publishing fake news and throwing it out onto the internet and drawing clicks and advertisers and all that? I mean, it's a way to make money. Well, I think the dilemma is not is also being felt by the social media platforms. I don't. I don't. While I think they're guilty of not regulating themselves. I think initially my impression, and I'm anxious to know your reaction to this, David, sure. was that initially they really believed that they were idealists, that they wanted a free and open expression. This was gonna be great for democracy, yada, yada. Um, you know, all good intents. I think once they became very big profitable companies, um, they realized at, along the way that controversy creates clicks. And 
this morning in the Wall Street Journal, there was a fascinating article. I don't know if you caught it. Uh, the, the technology writer points out that the real problem began, she felt, in, nine, in uh, 2009 and in 2016 when the social media platforms adopted these algorithms that figured yes. out how to get even more clicks by putting together people who were like-minded so that they click on each other more. Uh, to to they the algorithms who are you know it's AI it's it, it ain't us uh, figured out how to put people into rooms where they'd hear each other's theories they'd form groupthink and they'd fan the flames of each other's cabals if you will and that's that made the whole thing worse right there. And she even suggested maybe we, we, one of the things to be done is to, is to deal with how the sites deal with their algorithms, but that's interrupt, you know, that's private enterprise and they're making money because of those algorithms, much more money. Yeah, I, mean, I think what, that's exactly right. Yeah. I did see that article and it's an important concept um, because I don't know whether Zuckerberg and Dorsey were idealists or not, or whether they're just profit-seeking entities, and it doesn't matter. Um, what they found out is a way to prey on basic human psychology. People like their opinions reinforced. People like hearing more of what they already know. They like hearing what they already know is true. And if you just sort of set us loose to learn you know, only what we want to see, then that self-reinforces to the point that that's the only thing you see. You don't learn anything new. Uh, one of my favorite, favorite sites for uh, keeping an eye on the right wing is freerepublic.com. You guys ever seen Free Republic? No, but um, I'm writing it down. <laughs> freerepublic.com. It's a, it's a perfect fever swamp website. And it's fascinating because um, uh, it hits the high points that you're hearing in the news already that the conservatives are pushing, but it is so slanted. And they clearly also don't cover news that uh, they can't spin, news that is objectionable to them. Big news, you know, on a daily basis, I'll take a look at Free Republic, might as well not exist. People who get their news from these bubbles don't know a lot of what's going on and they have a different view of reality. And again, we're in a situation where we can't agree on what reality is. It's a problem. We know we have the problem and it's a big one. Can we modify it? Can we fix it? Can we put that genie back in the bottle? That is, that is exactly the next question. And it is a tough one. Now, first of all, what we have learned recently, I mean, really recently, only the last week or two, is deplatforming works, right? Um, on, I think, January 7th, um, uh, <laughs> Twitter gave Trump a 12-hour timeout. Um, and then Facebook followed on and gave him an indefinite timeout. And then 12 hours later, Trump starts tweeting again, and Twitter gives him an indefinite timeout. He was also deplatformed from um, Instagram, and he was deplatformed from uh, Snapchat. Oh my gosh! And Pinterest. I mean Pinterest. Pinterest. How? I mean, <laughs> I right? I'm dying to know what he was doing on Pinterest. I, I want to go back I, and if find, you find out. Please let me know because he was that taking is pictures of his last meal, like everybody else. Oh. <laughs> oh. recipes for hamburgers. Yeah. So deplatforming works. So uh, right after they deplatform him, uh, the analysis is misinformation about the election goes down by 73%. That is amazing. That is, that is an amazing. incredible, yeah, abrupt swing in the news. So this is a tool that is useful. And again, walking you through the history of Section 230, there's an opportunity for these companies to do that. Uh, they're immune if they deplatform, uh, uh, almost completely immune but there's no obligation whatsoever for them to do it. 
So there's a whole bunch of proposals flowing, uh, flying around. And um, I do think that reforming Section 230 is going to be necessary, but nobody is agreeing on what it is. Now, Biden, I was reading, just wants to throw the whole thing out. He wants to eliminate uh, Section 230, um, just toss it out, eliminate it. That just puts us back into the wilds in 1990. I mean, now we're in a situation again where, you know, the common law, based on the cases I cited to you, is going to be that the best thing you can do is nothing. The best thing you can do is let this stuff flow through. And that can't be the answer, can it? Um, there are other proposals. Well, we've that proved are it can't, as now people just stormed right. the, I mean, case in point, January 6th, the whole country watched it happen. Yeah, I just think that's got to be a non-starter after that. Trump, by the way, has also advocated tossing out 230, though the Justice Department had other more complex proposals. Um, uh, and of course, like I said, they're pushing in exactly the opposite direction. They want less censorship. I don't think that's going to fly in 2021 after what happened. I don't think that less censorship is going to be the answer. Um, one thing that I think Lynn uh, raised earlier is the fairness doctrine. Okay, um, Congress people have been talking about... Um, uh, reinstituting something like the fairness doctrine since I believe 2005, and it gets kicked around and gets shot down by conservatives. It's fascinating. I um, wonder if something like that would work. I went back and I read the old Red Lion case from like the mid 1960s, um, and the only reason that that didn't run afoul of the First Amendment, the fairness doctrine, was that um, it was based on the government control of the public airwaves. So it would only work really with radio and TV. I don't know if it'd be constitutional if you imposed a fairness doctrine on the internet. It might not be because on the basis of the case, you know, we don't have that, we don't have that angle. Right. What about something like this? Something that the news broads, uh, we talk about a lot in our podcasts is that there is a differentiation between news and entertainment. Just because you're on a Fox News uh, channel doesn't mean it's news. They also have what are considered entertainment shows. What if there was more of a, so that people understood that there are different um, types of shows on the same network? Do you think maybe that's one place we could start? Yeah, well, I would think so. But again, are you asking for people to do it voluntarily? Are you asking for the government to force it, right? Are we looking for a yeah. structural solution to top down? Are we asking for people to be good people? because the people being good people thing isn't working so far. Right, because what you were saying before, while the, the liberals were wanting a little more censorship because there was so much misinformation, but that the conservatives were thriving off of that, seems very similar to Fox wanting everyone to think that they are all news. So they are not going to voluntarily where other maybe more liberal stations yes. would want to differentiate. differentiate. I, I'm anxious to know what you think of a recommendation, which I thought was the, the sanest in a way, of, of all this stuff I've sort of looked through, which was something the Hill, the Hill did a really interesting article and the Hill's kind of a moderate force. I don't think they stay to the, uh, maybe they're a little right, but they're kind of not left, not right. And they proposed that we should regulate uh, the internet, the social media, as if it were a utility, as if it were a bank in, you know, or the pharmaceutical company. And so there would be regulations, but not necessarily specific censorship. It could be that like the fairness doc doctrine to, to all of your points, um, there would have to be um, a, a, an element of documenting what the truth is. You'd have to say if there were, if there was an outright lie, uh, like Twitter was doing right before 
all of this happened. Every time Trump went on Twitter, they'd say, you know, they point out that it was not a truth whenever he'd make an outrageous statement. I'm not sure if that would be too clumsy, but in other words, it would be the equivalent of a kind of fairness doctrine, but not imposing a true censorship. In other, sure. you know, it, it could be regulated, but not, you know, told exactly what to do. I, I don't know. I, I, what's your reaction to, to that sort of an idea? Several thoughts. Yeah. Um, one is no matter how you approach that, you're going to run into First Amendment problems. Okay. If the government is requiring uh, these companies to publish something or censoring them from publishing something, then unless you're in one of the narrow exceptions of the First Amendment, like defamation, uh, obscenity, uh, incitation to violence, that's sort of thing, then you're going to run into First Amendment problems right away. Uh, that said, I like the idea. One of the most interesting ideas I have seen proposed um, has been some sort of algorithm that when a statement is made that is a questionable statement, you've got an algorithm that plugs in opposing viewpoints or plugs in mainstream media viewpoints. So if somebody says the election has been stolen, you know, we're losing our country, it, the algorithm itself plugs in a link to CNN saying the election has not been stolen you know, things like that. Um, I love the concept, whether it passes First Amendment uh, concerns or not, I don't know. One other problem that we've got is, while even if Trump tweets 100 times a day, Twitter can keep up. They got enough staff to keep up with reading each one of those tweets and determining whether it's likely false and slapping a warning label on it. But, you know, on Twitter, there are 6,000 tweets a second there just aren't enough fact checkers to keep up with that. I've read somewhere that uh, Facebook receives, you know, something like over 50,000 uh, posts a second. I don't know if that's all post or if it's just thumbs up likes or what have you, but um, to the extent that they're posts, humans can't keep up with that. We are going to need, if we are going to have any equivalent to the fairness doctrine, any kind of corrective measure like that, we're gonna need this to come through computers and AI. I mean, it's the immediacy uh, that works for this, just imagine. Just imagine a situation um, where Section 230 was never established. And what we were living under, under was a Stratton Oakmont uh, prodigy uh, precedent. If I posted something on Facebook and I had to wait a week for the fact checkers to check and see whether it's defamatory before they allowed it up, that's gonna be a pretty boring site. That's not gonna be fun. When I post on Facebook, I get reactions from people in 30 seconds, right? And that's what we like about it. We like the immediacy of the conversation. That's what distinguishes it from older news where things can be vetted before they go online and the conversation isn't so immediate. How do you control that in a way that uh, stands up to First Amendment concerns? I love the algorithm idea. It's gonna to have to be tested as to whether or not it stands up to the First Amendment. The algorithm um, that you were saying that you liked, it also kind of, it feeds into this, um, teams thing though if someone says something but here's the other side of it it's kind of like how Al Gore said that there you can have you know this new way of like the, here's the right and here's the wrong this could be 900 people and this is 10 you know and it's shown as equal and I worry that that takes us back to um, the problems that we have with cable news and that they have these huge issues and showing only two sides when there can be multiple multiple sides and I think that might I'm seeing that as maybe feeding into um, the problems that we're having now about my team is right, your team is wrong. And I'm not going to listen yeah. to that side because that's the wrong side. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you. That's certainly a problem. There's often more than two sides to any issue. But essentially, that was the concept behind the Fairness Doctrine. And the Fairness Doctrine was eliminated in what, 87? Uh, lived from 46 to 87, give or take. Yeah. And um, uh, I think we can agree that um, 
we've siloed ourselves more since that went away. You know, uh, that was since Reagan was when uh, we started diverging down the paths. There's no longer, I mean, part of that's got to be technology too, right? There's no longer three big networks. There's like a million news outlets of all kinds. Um, and maybe that makes it easy to silo too. But maybe some of it is the fact that we don't present contrary viewpoints anymore. There's no money in it. There's no money in it. And that's the deal. It's mm -hmm. all about money in the end, isn't it? But you know, I want to get back to one quick thing. We, we, we sort of glossed over it. And that is... Is the First Amendment, it's getting back to the, you know, is the First Amendment really cover the internet? Right. I think that's another big issue at the heart of it. The First Amendment protects the free press. And the way the internet was first set up, it was not the press. Getting back to your newsstand analogy, uh, in that first case, it was considered the newsstand. And, and it was instead of news, with an editor, it was going to be a million op-ed, you know, letters to the editor. It was going to be a, an, a, a, an entity that presented three zillion letters to the editor, but not any, um, even opinion pages, if you will, or, or articles that were edited by an editor and with a publisher who was responsible uh, for the editor. So all of our discussion of free speech is terrific. We're all for it, God knows. Um, but from a legal point of view, it's murky when you're talking about the internet. Everybody agrees, or almost everybody agrees that something has to be done. But is invoking the First Amendment that relevant? Well, I am glad you raised that because it is a crucial and a difficult question. Now, I want to digress for one second. I have been in the process on behalf of one of my clients suing the Trump campaign for a couple of years now. Uh, we are suing to invalidate the non-disclosure agreements that all of the campaign workers signed. Hundreds of thousands of campaign workers essentially signed a contract that said that they will never disparage the president or his family. Uh, they will uh, not disclose information about them. Uh, confidential information in that agreement is defined literally uh, as anything Trump thinks is confidential, okay? It is a massively overbroad agreement. It is stupidly written and it deserves to be struck down. So we brought a class action to strike it down. One of our arguments that we have made besides that it's stupid is that it uh, is in violation of the First Amendment. Now, the common wisdom is that, just what you said, Judy, uh, private companies are not covered by the First Amendment in the sense that if a private company quashes or censors or uh, in other ways inhibits free speech, that's just not a problem. The First Amendment says government can't do that. It doesn't say that private entities can't do that. And I think that's what you were getting at. Yes. Now, the Trump campaign is a corporation, just like Twitter, just like Facebook. It's a private corporation. But here's the argument we're making. We say that if Trump tells the Trump campaign to quash free speech, then it's really Trump that's doing it using a private cutout. And there is good precedent for this. If the government uses a private company to quash free speech, then that's still government action subject to the First Amendment, okay? So that's our argument. And that brings us back around to, um, uh, to Twitter and to Facebook and whether or not uh, the First Amendment has any relevance whatsoever. I would argue if I were representing uh, somebody that were suing them, uh, say I am a conservative or represent a conservative that has had their um, uh, 
speech taken down by Twitter. Um, all right, that's protected by Section 230, but I can make the argument that my speech is protected by the First Amendment. The argument goes like this. After uh, January 6, Congress twisted the arms and threatened Twitter and Facebook and said, you better do something or we're gonna find a way to change the law or we're gonna find a way to prosecute you. There is good precedent that that sort of arm twisting um, by a public official of a private entity can be a First Amendment violation, okay? That's the only angle, by the way, that I see that these conservatives have. That's the only angle I see that they have to say that this is actually a First Amendment issue, that it's actually public officials twisting the arms of the private officials um, in order to uh, get free speech quashed. Maybe that could work. I think it's a Hail Mary pass, but I would argue it. Well, you know what? I think they would, I, I hate to defend them, but, the fact that Congress at the same time is looking to bring antitrust violations against these companies might yeah. just very well be the arm twister that could change their mind. Yeah, it could be. It could be. That is actually is a good point. I would argue that. Um, I think that the, the big cases, the two big cases that are against Facebook right now um, are fascinating, the antitrust cases. Uh, 48 states and territories have sued um, uh, Facebook for antitrust violations, and also the FTC has done so at the same time. Now, if you read those complaints, you're both in the District of Columbia Federal Court. If you read those complaints, they have nothing to do with fake news, nothing to do with uh, anything we've been talking about. They are about the acquisition of WhatsApp and Instagram and the, the horizontal uh, consolidation of the industry, the quashing of um, competition and all that. But are they politically motivated? I mean, antitrust cases usually are. So sure, maybe they're spanking Facebook until they decide to take things down. And maybe that is a First Amendment violation. You it's a stretch. You could take the case. Oh, this, yes, is a, David. this is amazing. This is so messy and so interesting. Thank you. Yeah. It is fun. And I, I, there was an article about, I think, eight days ago in the Wall Street Journal that suggested exactly that. It also suggested that... Um, the immunities themselves that were given by Congress in Section 230 could rope these companies into private action. I consider that to be even a harder argument, uh, but maybe the private cutout argument, uh, the same one I'm making uh, against the Trump campaign, maybe that could fly in a court. I would not blush to bring it. You know, you know, are we talking about a situation here where the, the horse is already out of the barn? Um, where we are so divided into silos right now, where we have two groups of people who just dislike and don't trust the one another. Um, if we could somehow come up with an intelligent way to regulate this, and this is, I guess, an unanswerable question, but I'm, I'm just asking all of us news broads and you, David, is the situation we're in fixable? I think it is, yeah. And I think what shows it is exactly what we said a few minutes ago. Um, within, what has it been, two weeks of the deplatforming of Trump, we get a 73% drop in misinformation. That shows that something can be done. And the question is, how can we encourage these companies to do it or compel them to do it? I mean, right now, there is no requirement in Section 230 that they moderate. There's simply an immunity if they do moderate. Can we make that stronger? Can we compel them to moderate? I mean, we've talked a lot about um, uh, defamation. That's where I started. But um, what about fraud? What about you know simple, flat-out lies? 
Um, there are lies that are going out there that are provably wrong and probably Jack Dorsey and Mark Zuckerberg know that they are wrong, but they allow them to exist on their site. Maybe we need some carve-outs from the immunity for that sort of thing. Maybe specifically for, for political speech. Maybe we don't say that, you know, you are liable for doing that, but we remove the immunity and we let the courts decide, right? Um, maybe there ought to be a chance to sue because you're using some of the Russian bot, Russian bots informations and putting them up on uh, Facebook and people that are harmed by that, maybe political um, uh, candidates can sue Facebook to get some remedy for that. I mean, there's a long history in this country of uh, encouraging companies to do the right thing through the courts. And maybe the courts are the best ones and maybe the only ones to ultimately decide whether something is a fraud or defamation or just a flat lie, uh, misinformation, disinformation, propaganda. Maybe that's the best place uh, to throw it by carving out some of the immunity that we've got. Isn't it amazing that we, I mean, a lie being a lie is something that we have to sit and talk about. I mean, that, that is, that's a sad place to be that we can't even all agree that a lie is a lie. Yeah, but I mean, Gina, you raised it before, who gets to decide? Right. Politicians always lied. The question is now we've given them an enormous <laughs> microphone. <Yeah. laughs> they lie, but they cannot legislate. <laughs> That's the problem. There, yeah. it, there yeah. are no rules. There are no regulations to follow. And no one trusts anyone. We don't trust our politicians. We don't trust our media. You know, wh where do we go from here if there is a lack of that? Yeah, exactly right. And look, here's what I can say. 230 allowed the Internet to grow, but it certainly hasn't regulated it enough to stop an insurrection. And I don't know exactly what the solution is, but I know that what we're doing right now hasn't worked perfectly um, and something needs to be done. There's gonna be a lot of talk about how to reform 230. There's probably gonna be a lot of talk about something like the fairness doctrine about uh, presenting opposing viewpoints. And I think that is probably the best place that we can go. It'll have to be carefully crafted and it'll have to survive a lot of scrutiny under the first amendment and it ought to, by the way, this is tricky. This is a dangerous area uh, that we are in, and we don't want to overdo it and quash free speech and quash alternative viewpoints. We don't, uh, but we can't keep doing what we're doing now. David, you've said it better than anyone could possibly have said it. You've been a great <laughs> guest. I nominate you for a commission. For <laughs> regulate. Not regulate, just gently nudge the internet. <laughs> to be continued. Thank you. You're awesome. Thank you so much. Thanks for being with us. You've been listening to the News Broads with Gina Cerrito, Judy Licht, and Lynn White. And our editor is Jeremiah Bruckhart.